This morning, we are going to continue our study. We're near the end. We only have this week and next week left of John. We're in chapter 20. If you want to find your way in the Bible that's in the pew with you, it's on page 1,153. You can follow on the screen. I'm going to pick up in at verse 11. What's happened prior to that is Mary Magdalene, one of the disciples of Jesus, has gone to the tomb where Jesus had been laid after his crucifixion. In the ancient world, there were three cultures that did three different things with dead bodies. The Egyptians, they would embalm the body and then wrap it. So it it would deteriorate, it would decompose at a much slower rate. Other cultures, like the Greeks, they burnt the body. They cremated the body so they would, it would quickly go to ash and there would be no decomposition. The Jews did neither of those things. The Jews literally would take the body, wash it, wrap it in cloth, linen, strips, and then put a face covering of cloth over the face and lay it in a tomb. And every day, for quite a long time, until the, not until the body completely decomposed, but until it stops thinking, they would come back in, and this is why Mary was there, they would unwrap the body, They would wash the body again and apply perfume. This reminds you of an earlier story where uh, Mary had put perfume on Jesus and the disciples complained that you so much. And he said, uh, I keep this for my burial. That's what's being used here. And so they would rewrap the body and then go away and come back. They do that several times. Well, Mary came to the tomb in verse 1. And the wrapping was there, but no body. And so she quickly runs to Peter and John and the rest of the disciples and said, the body is gone. And so Peter and John come and and they check out and there's no body there. And so here in verse 11, we're picking back up. Mary has returned to the tomb. Hear the word of the Lord. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken my away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away. Tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On that evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness uh, from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. May God help us to understand these, his most precious words. And so the question that you may be asking after last week is where do we go from here? Does he say anything more or just act like nothing has ever changed? One of the lessons, mainly because of the words that you gave me last week and all week long, it's been a fairly emotional week, and thinking about the words that I have heard said to me over the years, I'm learning that praise and good words seem to slip through my grasp while shame sticks like Velcro and sometimes feels impossible to shake. I think of Robert Murray Machane. You don't maybe know who he was, but he said something very helpful when he said, for every look we take at ourselves, we are to take ten looks at Christ. Martin Luther said something similar when he said, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. Most of us, and maybe I'm only speaking for myself, the volume is turned way too high for shame and guilt and fear. And we have the volume way too low on forgiveness, acceptance, and freedom. Do you remember when you were a kid and somebody said something to you and you said, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me? I beg to differ. I don't think there's a bigger lie in the world. It's true that sticks and stones can break our bones, but words, they can wound us so deeply, they can crush our souls. Words like, you're worthless, you're ugly, you will never amount to much, you disappoint me. Why can't you be more like whatever the fill in the blank is? I want a divorce. I wish you were never born. 
These are not life-giving words. They're life-taking words. And maybe you have never uttered those words. And maybe for you, no one has ever uttered those words to you. But they are words that we have heard, whether said to us or to others. Words not only have the power to rob life, to crush a soul, but they also have the power to lift, to bring strength to the weary, to hope to the hopeless, and to put courage back in to the heart. Words like, you matter. You are loved at your best, and my very favorite, you are loved at your worst. You are uniquely gifted. You are a child of God. You are the bride of Christ. I value you. I forgive you. I love you. These are the kinds of words that lift the heart and bring healing to the soul. They can free the chameleon to come out of his hiding, out of fear, and empower him to live his true identity. These words can encourage the performer, the poser, to step into the light and tell his own story, the true story, the one that has blemishes, the one that has struggles, the one that has sin, as well as beauty and goodness and mercy. In order to turn down that volume of our shame and our guilt, our fear and our doubt, and to turn up the volume on our Father's voice, you and I have to practice something that you practice with me this week. Call a culture of benediction. Benediction is a two Latin words that were put together. Bene, which means good, and diction means word or words. It simply means to give good words. You know, we try to do that on Sundays when you come forward during communion. We want it to be a time not where the cattle is called forward and you're just following the person in front of you, meaningless and without thought. We want the elders of the church to stand in front of you and tell you a good word. We want them to impart to you good words. We can't do that from the pew because typically you're too far away. So we invite you to come forward. Another one is when Greg, a little earlier, asked you to, during that moment of greeting, to speak to one another. And it would be a shame if all we do every Sunday is say, how are you? And there's not enough time to go into what's really going on in life. So you say what I always say, good, I'm okay. And in reality, that's not either true or accurate, but it is something to fill the blank for as little time as we have. But it is an opportunity for you to say something to someone else that is good, that is a good word, that is true, that is a benediction. Our hope, my hope, is that as we increasingly come out of hiding, and maybe you're not in hiding, but there are so many that are, maybe 
when we come out, we'll be a little less lonely too. This is what Jesus is doing in this text. He's not just simply showing up and proving that he's alive. He's not simply just saying, hey, here, here I am, I told you. But look what he says. And to whom he says it to. In this text, there are really three categories. There's Mary Magdalene. To know a little bit about Mary tells you a lot about why he says what he says to Mary. She struggles with shame. And so he has words of encouragement, words of life to her. Not only, not only do I go to my God, not only do I go to my father, I go to your father too. There's the disciples who are so afraid that they've locked the doors. They've gone into hiding. And Jesus says, peace be with you. And then lastly, the doubter. Thomas, the one who says, I've got to be able to put my fingers in the holes. Jesus says, okay, put your fingers there. But blessed is the one who doesn't have to see to believe. Let's kind of pull those apart because there's so much in each of these that minister to me as well as I hope to you. I want you to understand that this text, it demonstrates something. It demonstrates that God is not making Good people. God is making new people. The verse that that we need to hold on to, to cling to, if there's something that we can cling to, is in Second Corinthians five seventeen, where he says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. Jesus is about making new people. That doesn't mean that moral reformation doesn't come in with the newness. But moral reformation isn't what creates the newness. It's just a simple byproduct of being new. Mary has returned to this tomb. We see in verse 11, and we also read that she weeps. The word is too soft. She's not just weeping, she's wailing. The Middle Eastern way of grieving the loss is to wail, to scream. She is wailing because she's mourning the death of Jesus. But it's more than that. She's come back to a tomb that she knows is empty because she's weeping that her her leader is gone. And she doesn't know where he is. She doesn't know what they've done with his body. Who was Mary Magdalene? And truth be told, we don't know much about her, past anyway. There's only one verse about her in the entire Bible. About her past, anyway. In fact, I I think it would be helpful if you knew that Mary was from Magdala. And that's why she's called a Magdalene. When it says Mary Magdalene, she's really Mary the Magdalene. There's a little town in Galilee where Jesus was doing ministry and met Mary along with other women and other men. But there's no evidence that we have in history that Mary was a prostitute, that she was some incredibly immoral person that comes to faith and follows Jesus. That 
particular rumor was started by Gregory the Great, 500 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. But it seems that the church has believed that about her for about 1,500 years. There's no biblical evidence of that. In fact, the only thing that we really know about Mary, at least before she meets Jesus, is found in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, where it simply says she had been healed of seven demons. And we don't, we don't really know what that means. We're in the 21st century and we think we're past all of this. And, and so we don't describe things like this this way. It could have manifested itself in a number of different ways to have demon possession and to have it this profound of seven. It could have come out spiritually in the sense of that she was uh, an unbeliever and not a follower of God. It could have come out uh, physically. She could have had a contorted. She could have had a disease. She could have had something physically wrong with her, twisted. But it could also have been mental. Today, we could have claimed that she was a multi-personality disorder. We could have said that she was schizophrenic. There could have been so many diagnoses in the 21st century we could uh, attach to these seven demons. We just simply don't know whether she had one or none of these or all of them. We just know this, that if you've got this, nobody's inviting you over for dinner. Nobody's making you part of the club. Nobody's asking you out. You are on the outside. You're the outcast. And if that is not suffering enough, she did have seven demons after all. And so she had profound pain. And yet, she's part of the band of Jesus' disciples. She was with Jesus' mother at the cross, and she becomes the first apostle. I know we tend to say apostle is an office, and it is. But the word literally just means one who is sent. And Mary, when she sees the empty tomb, she goes to John and to, to, to Peter. But not only that, it's Jesus who sends her later when he's, she sees him. He says, now you go tell the disciples that I'm alive. Do you realize the first herald of the gospel outside of Jesus was Mary Magdalene? Was this woman who had been a, an incredible outcast in her community, who, who, who had great pain and suffering associated with demon possession, and yet the Lord chose her, which teaches us something. And I see this over and over again in the Bible, is that, More often than not, God uses the least to make the greatest impact. You try it out. You do the research. You look for who the disciples were, who the first herald of the gospel, who were the first believers, who opened the doors of the gospel to to the Jews and to the Samaritans and to the Greeks. You look and see, and you will see over and over again, it's the outcast, it's the poor, it's the disenfranchised, it's, it's the one that you and I would not pick. And often, it's women. In a culture where women weren't allowed to testify in court because they were considered untrustworthy. In fact, this is one of the reasons that I know that God is the author of the Bible. Because if a man was responsible for the Bible, 
that is, he's launching a religion, he doesn't put a woman at the center of the story. Because nobody did that. You go read the Quran, and you tell me where the women are. No ancient religion ever puts a woman at the center of the story. Except the New Testament. But why? Why does God do this over and over? When you think about the slave girl in Nahum, who's the, who's the main character of that story? It's not Nahum. It's the little slave girl who tells him where to go to get healed. Why does God do that over and over again? What, what exhibits the glory of God more? To use outcast and poor and broken and women? Or to use powerful and wealthy and self-righteous and men? Now we can see that Mary is the first to see the risen Christ. But what does he say? Mary, don't cling to me. That's weird. I thought this was supposed to be good words. Where's the encouragement? What Mary was trying to do was to have the old Jesus. What Mary was hoping for was to put everything back the way it once was with all the safety and all the security. And Jesus said, I want to, I want to give you something better. I want to give you something more. What does he want to give her? A father who will never leave. A God who is always hers. You don't understand. In the Jewish culture, people who had demon possession aren't allowed in the temple. They're not allowed to have God. They're not allowed to call him father. No one's allowed to call him father, but certainly not someone who had been demon possessed. Her shame is what led her to go to Jesus. He says, I want you to have a father. This is, this is what good words do to someone who has known shame. You're in. You're loved. You're forgiven. Then secondly, where in the world have the disciples been? On the, this is verse 19, on the evening of that day, that same day he appeared to Mary. This is Sunday. The first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were. Why? Why were they in a locked room? It says, for fear of the Jews. What were they doing? They were hiding. They were hiding. But why were they hiding? They were afraid. Fear is a powerful motivator. The, the thought of exposure would cost them. At least they feared it would cost them. And so exposing is not something they want to do. And so they hide. This week, you, you ever seen a rabbit when he finds out he's being watched what he does? That's how I have felt this whole week. So it, it's bouncing off the fence because I'm exposed. And fear does not want you to be exposed. 
So what do you do? You hide. This is what they're doing. Because in my past, to be exposed cost. It didn't cost somebody calling you a name, and that would have been horrible and enough of its own. But it physically cost me to be exposed. And so I hid, and I still hide. What does Jesus say? Peace be with you. What does a rabbit caught want? Peace. He forgives their denials. He forgives their unfaithfulness. He forgives even their hiding. What we don't understand sometimes is that Jesus died for even my hiding. Of course. Hiding is perfectly understandable. If you don't understand that, I'll explain it to you. It's perfectly understandable. But it is a form of unbelief. Jesus told them this was going to happen. They knew it was going to happen. If you don't recognize that God forgives your hiding, this is good word to you today. That you can come out. Not because I think it's safe. Because quite frankly, it's not always safe. That would be a lie. But you have to come up to somebody. Because if you hide, you are also alone. The last one is Thomas. He's a twin. I don't know if you knew that about him. Because his twin gets no bill, Thomas gets it all. Apparently, Thomas was, according to verse 24, he wasn't with the disciples when Jesus showed up previously on the day of his resurrection. He's often called Doubting Thomas, and that's not a uh, compliment, because of this statement in verse 25. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. There's an emphatic statement. But understand what he's saying. I know Jesus died. There's no doubt in my mind Jesus is dead. I need to see the evidence that it's that Jesus whom you said you saw. Before you began to think that everyone in the first century believed in the resurrection, almost no one did. You said, but the the Pharisees, that was the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees only believed in a collective resurrection. At the end of time, when God resurrected all the dead for judgment. That's what they believed in. But the idea of a single person who once was dead is now alive, absolutely no one believed in that that we know of in history. So before you you say Thomas had no reason for doubt, he had every reason for doubt. Every religion did not teach in a personal resurrection. You say, but but there was Lazarus. People didn't view that as a resurrection. They viewed that as a a, a recitation, the fact that he he began to breathe again because he was going to die again. He says, I need to see Jesus for myself. What does Jesus say? Peace be with you. Again, Jesus forgives his unbelief. And then to dispel that unbelief, he says, put your fingers here then. 
and see my hands and put your hand in the place of my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. It's verse 27. Isn't that great? He could have just said, you missed it. I was already here a week ago. I'm sorry you weren't here. You're just going to have to take my word for it now. This week, well, it was actually two weeks ago, I got this email from a third grade teacher uh, who was teaching at Vacation Bible School, and they were having this conversation. She said in her email, there aren't many adults in the world who would think that the creator of the universe would show up in a bare basement classroom for a third grader's busy with word searches, crosswords, and crafts. In fact, most of us would dismiss the notion as silly. And if we wanted to find God, we wouldn't look here. But what if God did show up? How would we know he showed up? The teacher then turned to the third graders and asked, if we can't see him, how do we know he's real? In the next moment, one camper, the one who did not speak Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, the one who sat alone, content or off to the side, and the one who swept the floors every day before we left the classroom, raised his hand and said, can I tell you a story? The little boy hiding behind a red bandana, he tied over his head and the second one over his mouth. So only you could see was his eyes. He said, I once prayed to God and asked him if he was real or not. I wanted to know because I didn't believe he was because I couldn't see him. Then my little brother drowned in a pool. He was two years old. My mom tried to bring him back to life. He wasn't breathing. He was blue. I watched the whole thing. After a while, he finally started to breathe again, and my mom asked him, Are you okay? And he said, The Purple King saved me. Now, the little boy said, I know God is real. No one said anything. Seventeen third graders sat in silence. And if you don't know that was a miracle, you've not been around third graders. She said, I held my hand over my mouth and held back the tears. I asked the students if they knew about the disciple Thomas, a few in the front that started frantically searching in the Bibles. And one little girl shouted, I found it. And she read, now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. We told him, you are Thomas, and that the Lord answers prayers. How do you know when God shows up? God uses, she says, the least among us to teach us about the greatest story ever told. Because maybe then and only then will we notice and listen to what a little boy will teach us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I think if we practice, I think if we promote, if we encourage a culture of good words where people come out of their hiding and here you are a new creation, the old is past, the new has come a place where we turn down the volume of shame and guilt 
and fear and doubt. And it's a place where we turn up the volume of forgiveness and grace and acceptance and freedom. Because that's exactly what Jesus does. We don't have to see Jesus physically to believe him. Because we can see him at work in people's lives as they come out of hiding into the light. As people grapple with the good words of the gospel, then we know he's real. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. I thank you that you're real. That we don't have to see you physically to put our fingers in the nails of your hands, to put our hands into the side where their hole was put by a spear. We don't have to see you face to face right now to believe because you're in our hearts and then we can hear and, and hear testimony of lives that you are changing by your gospel. We see you at work. We can't see the wind, but we know it's there because of its effects. We know the Holy Spirit is at work because we can see the effects of the Spirit in our midst. And so I pray that you might give us again these words that we can speak to one another that gives life rather than takes it away, that encourages the hiders, the posers, the pretenders to come into the light where you are, where you do your work, where there is healing. And I pray for anyone in the room who, who can resonate. They understand this story. They understand that words have devastated their lives, if not actions itself. And I pray that they might hear, peace be with you. Have peace because you are forgiven. You're accepted. You are loved.